Good to see you this morning. Uh, our sermon text is in Acts chapter 8, if you go ahead and, and turn there. Acts chapter 8. I've been preaching through uh, the, the book of Acts. Acts was written by a man named Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts in the Bible. I'm, I'm sorry, the book of Luke in the Bible. And the book of Acts covers the events that happened after the ascension of Jesus to heaven. He came, he lived, he died uh, for the sin of the world. He ascended to heaven. And Acts then talks about the disciples, 12, the 12 apostles and other early Christians, how they then took the news of Christ out to the world. We're now in Acts chapter 8. Uh, we'll be reading verses 9 to 25 in just, just a couple minutes here. Uh, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we, we thank you that everything is by grace and grace alone. It says so many times in the Bible that it's by grace and not by our works that we are saved so that man may not boast in your presence. If it's not all grace, then we can boast. And we know it's all grace, Lord God, so that you, you get all the glory. And that's so good for us, Lord God. It's all you from start to finish. It's all your grace. And Father, we know it is a grace to open your word and to be able to read this word that you breathed out for us, for our good. And we would just ask, Father, right now, I would ask for the gift of your spirit in this room, the gift of your spirit in our hearts, Lord, that, 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 that mix of word and spirit that would be explosive in our hearts, Lord God. Pray, Father, for your help as we look at your word this morning. We trust, Lord, that you love us. We can see it in Christ on the cross. We can see your love there. And so when we read a text like this that is more direct and, 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 and a bit more sobering, we can still know that you love us and, and this is love. So, Father, help us, we pray. We thank you for it in the name of, of Jesus. Amen. Our typical practice here uh, with this church is to preach through different books of the Bible from start to finish, like I'm preaching through Acts right now. And one of the reasons we do that is because we believe all of the Bible is important. If you want to be healthy as a church, if you want to be healthy as a Christian, you, you can't just go to those texts and topics in the Bible that you like, uh, that feel really, really good to you. No, you, you also need to go to those texts that feel a little bit harder to swallow at times. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture has been breathed out by God and is profitable for us as, as Christians. If you have kids, uh, I'm sure you want them to have a balanced diet. You know what would happen if you left your kids on their own. I know what would happen in my house. It would be all Pop-Tarts 24-7 if they could get their hands on them. But you want them to have a balanced diet, so you mix in some broccoli occasionally, and your kids look at it and say, what's that? I have to, I have to eat it. It's green. That's not a Pop-Tart. And, and we preach through books of the Bible for a healthy, balanced spiritual diet. But that means you hit texts like we have today. This text here today is more of a vegetable type of text. There is a topic here in this text that, that might not taste that sweet 
on the surface. It is a little more sobering, and the topic is that of false conversion or of false salvation. The Bible in many places indicates that it is very possible for a person to think that he or she is a Christian. To to think that he or she has been converted, I I have turned to Christ in faith, I look like a Christian, I do lots of Christian things, and yet there has been no real work of the Holy Spirit in that person's heart. There's been no real turning from sin to repentance. There is not a genuine faith in Christ as both Savior and as Master. It is a false convert, or as Jesus would say, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Looks on the surface like a sheep, but at heart it is still a wolf. And please hear me, there are many false converts in churches all over the world. Jesus in Matthew 7 says that many people in this world, many who call him Lord, call him master, Jesus, you're my master. Jesus says that many of them will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. False converts. It is a truth in Scripture, one we don't always like. You will not hear it a lot of times in a lot of churches. It is true. A.W. Tozer has a a quote here. He said, it is my opinion that tens of thousands of people, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ, and they have not been saved. And here in Acts 8, we now meet what I believe was a false convert. Just to recap where we're at here in the book of Acts, at the start of Acts, just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said to his original disciples that they would be his witnesses. They would now go tell people about him, starting there in Jerusalem where they were, and then they would move out to Judea and Samaria, Jesus said, and then ultimately toward the the uttermost part of the earth. And up to chapter 6 here in the book of Acts, the apostles or early disciples, they have been witnesses in Jerusalem, telling people about Christ there in the city, um, just like Jesus said they would. But in Acts 7, uh, Stephen, an early Christian, was martyred. He was stoned, which sparked a massive persecution against the early Christians. And God used that persecution. As the Christians scattered out of Jerusalem, they went telling people about Christ in Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus said they would. And we've seen them now moving into Samaria here in Acts 8. And the first person to go to Samaria to proclaim Christ was a man named Philip. And he went there preaching Christ, we, we saw at the beginning of Acts 8, and working many miracles. And the, the, the Samaritans responded to Philip. Wow, they believed what he was saying, and many of them were converted. True conversions began to follow Christ in faith. But Luke now here in this text tells us of a man in Samaria named Simon who also seemingly converted to Christ, seemingly turned to Christ in faith, but I don't think he really did. Let's go ahead and read it, Acts chapter 8, verse 9. Luke writing says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. 
They all paid attention to Simon from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, the Samaritans, that they might now receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simeon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor law in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that none of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord... They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And I do believe that Simon is what Jesus would call a wolf in sheep's clothing. He he looks like he converted. He turned to Christ in faith in some way. We'll get to that in a second. But he was a false convert. And as we look At Simon today, I think we can see three characteristics here of a false convert. One, there is a superficial faith. Two, there is bad fruit. And three, there is no repentance. And the first thing we see here with Simon is a superficial faith, I believe. Verse 9 says that Simon had practiced magic in Samaria. And you and I, we hear the word magic, and we may think of, of, of some TV magician uh, doing all of these kind of sleight-of-hand tricks, uh, card tricks, pulling rabbits out of hats, sliding these uh, supposedly razor-sharp blades through an assistant's body. Uh, you parents that have kids, your kid has probably come to you at some point and said, watch this, mommy, abracadabra, or, or as one of my kids said, Adjabadadja, uh, hokey pokey, presto, and there's this trick, and you have no idea, right, uh, how they did it. Pure magic, making that penny disappear in his pocket right before your face. But Simon here, he was not just some TV magician. This man was most likely a full-fledged sorcerer, more of what we would call today a witch or a warlock, an expert in the occult. The Greek word for magic there is Megaea. It's, it's why many people call this man Simon Magus. Megaea refers to one who performed ceremonial rites or incantations in order to influence or control the spiritual forces in the universe. 
And the Bible indicates that, that sorcerers, which is warlocks, they, they, they can at times have some power. Demonic power, Satan's demons working through them, but some real power. When the Jews were in Egypt, if you remember, God worked miracles through Moses, the, the plagues before Israel was delivered, and the magicians in Egypt could copy some of those miracles. Not all of the miracles, because Satan's power is limited, but some of the miracles, they could copy a legitimate power. And Simon seems to have had some legitimate power. Luke says twice here that Simon had amazed the Samaritans. If you look at verse 9, Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people. Or verse 11 And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. These people had in some way been stunned by something this man was doing. And I don't think it was just sleight of hand card tricks. Simon, here as he's working these miracles, he he said that, that he was someone great. You look at the middle of verse 9. He amazed the people saying that he himself was somebody great. He probably portrayed himself as as some godlike figure in, in Samaria. And listen, they were convinced that he was. If you look at verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. Or, another translation, this man is the great power of God. He's either God himself or he's some God-like figure with all that he's doing here in Samaria. And this was a legitimate deal. Justin Martyr, may have heard the name before, famous second century Christian apologist who lived in Samaria just after Simon did, Justin Martyr wrote this. There was a Samaritan, Simon, who did mighty acts of magic by virtue of the art of the devils operating in him. He was considered a god. And as a god, he was honored by you Samaritans with a statue on the river Tiber that bore this inscription in the language of Rome, Simone Deo Sancto to Simon the Holy God. And almost all the Samaritans and a few even of other nations worshipped him and acknowledged him as the first God. He had set himself up in Samaria as a God, and people believed that he was. But the problem is that Philip has now arrived in Samaria working some serious miracles in the name of Christ. Luke said up in verse 6 that Philip was casting out demons in Samaria that were coming out with a shriek. He was healing the lame and the paralyzed. Paralytics now walking in Samaria in the name of Jesus Christ. Some serious power working in and through Philip. And you now have this bizarre face-off in Samaria. Over here you have Simon the sorcerer with some power pointing to himself, calling himself great, some type of God. And over here you have Philip the Christian, much greater power pointing to Christ, calling him great, the only true God. And the Samaritans look 
And they know. And they hear Simon preaching about, or Philip preaching about Christ. They know. And the Samaritans turn away from Simon now to Christ. Converted. Following Christ. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, true converts, beginning to follow Christ. This public display, baptism, of their new allegiance to Jesus Christ. No longer Simon, but Jesus, we believe, is the one true God. And that had to bother Simon. But he joins with the other Samaritans. You look at verse 13 again, and even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And, and listen, it, it is possible that Simon did have a genuine faith in Christ, a saving faith, and as a genuine Christian now, we just got some serious problems <laughs> that Peter is going to have to work out with this guy's life. But I don't think Simon had a true faith. And as you read through this passage, I think it becomes evident he did not have a true faith. Luke says here that Simon believed. But please hear me on this. That word believe in the Bible, it doesn't always mean it's a saving belief, a genuine faith in Christ. No, there is another type of belief mentioned in the Bible. Not a deeply rooted saving belief in Christ in the heart, but a superficial, head-only belief in Christ. You, you, you believe some things about Jesus. You, you may believe that Jesus is, is God. You may believe that Jesus even came down to save sinners. You may even believe that Jesus saved you. You, you may say those things publicly. You may be baptized like Simon. You give mental assent to those things. You agree with those things. You believe them in your mind. But you don't yet believe to the point of surrendering your entire life to Christ. You are not yet truly following Christ, obeying Christ as both your Savior and as your Master. R.C. Sproul said that you can have a profession of faith in Christ in your mouth, in, in your head, saying that you believe in Christ without a true possession of saving faith in your heart. Just a superficial faith. The Puritans called it a spurious, false faith. And I want to show you some places in the Bible where we see this superficial, false faith. The entire book of James, you could pretty much go there. It was written to people who had a profession of faith in Christ. It was written to people who said they believed in Christ, that they, they, they were Christians, but the fruit of their lives, their works, their, their actions, were indicating it was maybe not yet a true possession of real faith in their hearts. And James warns them. He says this in James 2.26. He says, faith apart from works is dead. You people say you have faith, but if your so-called faith does not produce good works, actions that prove that Christ is your master, James just said it is a dead faith. It may be some type of faith, but it is a dead faith, not a saving faith, a superficial false faith. 
Or James 2.19, he says this to the same people. You believe. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that. And shudder about it. You, you, you people may believe there's, there's only one God. You may believe even that Jesus is that God. Great. But even the demons believe that stuff. Even demons believe that Jesus is God. Even demons believe that Jesus came to earth to save sinners. Demons give mental assent to those things. Demons agree with those things in their minds if they have them. There's some sort of faith in demons believing some of those things. But that is not a saving faith. A faith. A belief of some sort that is superficial, head only, false, and does not lead those demons into the kingdom of heaven. Or, Jesus himself in the parable of the sower. Jesus says there are some people who have rocky soil in their hearts and when they hear the, God, the word of God, they hear it, Jesus says, and they receive it initially with joy. But look what Jesus then says, Luke eight thirteen. but these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. And once again, some sort of belief it is some sort of faith in Christ in the head. But the heart is hard. There's no room in the heart for that faith to take root. There's no root, Jesus said, in the heart. He's a head-only faith. Here's the problem. Many of those people are then baptized. They're looking like Christians. But, but, but this lack of true faith in the heart later reveals itself, Jesus said, a, t- a time of testing, difficulty, trial. Worldly temptation. And they fall away. And they leave Christ. Maybe still sitting in church services. But their heart is not there. They didn't lose their salvation. No, the Bible's very clear. Once you're truly saved, you have a genuine faith in Christ, with roots in your heart, you, you cannot lose that salvation. God won't let you. His Holy Spirit in your heart, grace and grace alone, will keep you persevering to the end. The person who walks away in their heart didn't lose their salvation. They just proved they never had salvation to start with. They proved that they only had a superficial, useless, dead, head-only faith. It is very possible to have some sort of belief in Christ, to be baptized, to be sitting in a service like this today, but you do not yet have a working, living, breathing faith in Jesus Christ. You do not yet have a life-changing, life-altering faith. You have not yet surrendered your entire life, now truly following and seeking to obey the Lord Jesus Christ as your only master in, in this world. You don't yet have that type of faith, but just an empty, dead faith. 
And please hear me, and I just say this with all the love in the world. These things are not easy to say. Please hear this. If that is your faith today, you are a false convert. You have not yet received the forgiveness of sins. You are not yet part of God's family. And though you call yourself a child of God and call Jesus Christ your master, though you have been baptized 110 times, if you die in that condition, you will not enter heaven for eternity. But you will experience an eternal hell. The Bible is very, very clear. Please receive that as love for you today. It's not love to let people go to the ends of their life without telling them that. It is love to be honest about it today, which Peter will be with Simon. Peter could just let Simon go. I'll just, okay, you look strange to me, but you say you're a Christian, go your way. Peter won't do it because he loves this man in the same way that Jesus loves us enough to speak the truth. So please hear that. If that's your faith, you are a false convert. And that, I believe, was Simon. Derek Thomas says this, Whatever Simon had experienced since Philip had come to Samaria, it was not saving faith in Jesus Christ. He may have had faith in some sense, but it was a temporary faith. A faith lodged in his head, but not in his heart. So that is one characteristic that we see here, I believe, of of false conversion. There is a superficial faith. A second characteristic of false conversion here, bad fruit. You know, one one of the ways false converts are identified is by their fruit. Their actions in this life. It ultimately doesn't matter what you said when you were four. Yes, it's good to pray that prayer of salvation. But if that doesn't ultimately produce fruits in your life that indicate that Jesus is truly your master, then you did not pray a prayer of salvation. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 15. He says, beware of false prophets or beware of false Christians who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And Simon's fruit from the start here does not look good. If you look at verse 13, even Simon himself believed in some way, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Luke says there that Simon now continued with Philip. The Greek could be translated as Simon attached himself to Philip. Attached at the hip with Philip, man. Following this guy everywhere, which sounds like a great thing for a new believer to do, but I don't think it was. Because that Greek word there is not typically used to describe true disciples and the way they follow Jesus. One writer said that the idea behind the Greek word here for following or continuing with with Philip, the idea there is that of a a groupie following his favorite rock star around. And Philip was now Simon's rock star. Simon didn't follow Philip here, I don't believe, because he wanted... To know more about Christ. No, Simon was a sorcerer, and I think Simon wanted Philip's greater power. Earlier, Luke said twice 
that the Samaritans had been amazed at, at, at Simon's power. But Luke just said right there that now Simon saw Philip's power and he was amazed. And that, I believe, is the key with Simon here. Philip had more power than him. And I think Simon wanted his power. Kent Hughes says this, Simon could not get over what he was seeing, this power, fascinated by that power. He made a public profession of faith and was publicly baptized and now pursued that power, but it was not a genuine conversion of the heart. What we have here is the devil joining the church. And Simon then just continues to pursue this power once the apostles get to Samaria. We don't have time to cover it in detail. Luke says in verse 14 that the apostles, still back in Jerusalem, well, they now hear the news that Samaria is receiving the word of God, that they're becoming Christians, and the apostles then send Peter and John, the top apostles, to go down to Samaria and investigate it. They see that the Samaritans' faith is, is genuine, and they then lay their hands on them and pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit and the Samaritans do because Simon again he's he's enthralled by the power he sees what happens with the Samaritans so so there's there's some power manifesting by the Holy Spirit now in the Samaritans they, they, they may have spoken in in new tongues like on the day of Pentecost they, they may have prophesied may have performed amazing miracles like Philip and you've got all this amazing stuff the apostles are now there and and what's happened here in the book of Acts is, is that Christianity has now crossed the first big ethnic barrier at the at the start of Acts it was just Jews becoming Christians it was it was full-blooded Jews in Jerusalem but now it was Samaritans who were half Jews and what we see in the book of Acts is that every time Christianity crosses a new major ethnic barrier, we see the same pattern. First, the people believe in Christ. Well, then the apostles come to investigate. And God then gives the Spirit. We see that pattern here with the Samaritans, half-Jews. We'll see that exact same pattern later in Acts, Acts 10, when Christianity crosses the biggest ethnic barrier and Christianity moves to Gentiles, non-Jews. Same pattern. First, they will believe in Jesus. The apostles will go and investigate, and God will then give the Holy Spirit. And, and some have concluded from that, from the book of Acts there, they've concluded that that's how things work today. They, they say that baptism or, or filling with the Holy Spirit is a secondary event that happens after you believe in Christ and only some Christians will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Pentecostals believe like that. If you believe like that, that's fine. Welcome. Glad you're here. I don't think that's biblical. I do not think that's the way God works now. This was a very unique time in history. The gospel was crossing all of these major ethnic barriers for the first time. First full Jews, then half Jews, and finally non-Jews. And on every occasion, God withheld the Spirit from new believers until the apostles could get there to see the Spirit fall on these new believers 
And that manifestation of the Spirit then convinced them God has included this ethnic group in his plan of salvation, just like the Jews. We'll see that with the Gentiles. The Spirit falls, Peter sees it, and he says, we can't withhold baptism then from, from them then because God has chosen them. The Spirit is the evidence. God was giving evidence throughout the book of Acts that he was welcoming all these new ethnic groups into his kingdom, and the evidence was the manifestation of the Spirit, and he always had the apostles there to, to witness it. And they knew God had opened it up. But now, now that Christianity has already crossed all those major ethnic barriers, all the rest of the New Testament books indicate very clearly that the baptism or filling with the Spirit happens the second you trust in Christ for every believer. You you turn to Christ in faith and the Spirit now takes up residence within you. The Holy Spirit now dwells inside of you forever. Every true Christian now baptized, filled with God's Spirit. That filling can happen multiple times. We see it happen with the apostles all the way through Acts. Filled and filled and filled again once you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. And now that you are a Christian, you have God's Spirit. The Spirit now begins to empower every true Christian with different gifts of the Spirit. Now you can certainly quench the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Levi will address some of that um, in just a bit. You can quench the Spirit You cannot walk in the gifts of the Spirit, but you have the Spirit as a Christian, baptized, filled with the Spirit. I'll talk more about the gifts uh, this this winter uh, when I preach through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. We do at this church believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit are still active. You don't have to believe that to be here in this church. Just know that's the official position of this church. But we don't believe there's a secondary experience in order to get that baptism of the Spirit. Just know for now, whatever you believe about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just know that with these Samaritans right now, there's a serious manifestation of the Holy Spirit after the apostles lay their hands on these believers and Simon sees it. And Simon wants that power. If you look at verse 18, now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit and probably speak in new tongues and, 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 and prophesy and, and, and heal. Give me this power. Not a genuine Love for Christ here, just coveting Christ's power. And Simon tries to buy it from the apostles. And that's what magicians did in this day. They would actually make little magic recipe books with their incantations and sell them. So you would go around buying power if you could buy their recipe books. And he wants to buy power from the apostles. And all this focus was Simon on the power of Christ, but not on Christ himself. That's a problem. Because the the, the miracles are just not done for for their own good. No, you know what the miracles are? The miracles are like a hand that's pointing to Christ. And the miracles should lead you to Jesus Christ himself. But if all you do is gather around the miracles, and that's all you want is miracles, 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 you haven't seen the hand pointing to Christ. It's like a little child. If you point out the window and say, hey, look at the bird. Where does the little child look? At your hand. 
And you're like, no, it's out there. Get out there. And they just keep looking at your hand. And that's what so many people in church services do or, or throughout Christianity have done. You see the miracles and it's the hand pointing to Christ, but we can't get off the hand. We're like little kids. And man, Simon, he, he just can't get off the hands pointing to Christ. But in all this, Simon, just focusing on power is just bad fruit. There's evidence that Simon has come to Christ for the wrong reason. And there are many professing Christians like that today, baptized who would call Jesus their Lord, their, their master, but their fruit, the actions in their lives, it's just not good. And, and it has maybe been like that for years, never getting better. No, no real works that would indicate the faith is genuine. No, no real love for Christ, and it's obvious no real desire to, to read the scriptures or to obey Christ. No real desire to follow Christ or, or to, to worship Christ with other believers. No, no real desire to fellowship with other believers. You ever heard that before? I love Jesus, but I just hate the church, the people of God. Listen, if there's a genuine faith in your heart, I get it. Church is a problem sometimes. We all feel that. But if you have a genuine faith in your heart, if Christ is in your heart, there will be a love for the body of Christ, which is the church. And Jesus says you'll know them by their, by their fruit. So that's the second thing here, second characteristic of false conversion. First is superficial faith, second bad fruit. And, and a final thing we see here, final characteristic of false conversion, there's no repentance. Simon just tried to buy power from Peter and John, and Peter rebukes him in love, but sharply. And, and what Peter says here indicates, I believe, that Peter did not think Simon was a true convert. Look at verse 20. But Peter said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. It could literally be translated like this. Simon, may your silver together with you go into destruction. And the Greek is so blunt there that J.B. Phillips translated it like this. To hell with you and your money. Sounds like profanity. That is the sense of what Peter just said. To hell with you and your money. And Peter goes on in love for this man's soul. Verse 21 you, you, Simon, have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And I think Peter was saying there that Simon had no part or lot with Christ. Your, your heart not yet right with God. You are a false convert, and it gets stronger. In love, if you look at verse 23, for I see, Simon, that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of of iniquity. You're still a prisoner, Simon. You're still a prisoner of your own sin. Not yet freed from your bondage to sin through a genuine faith in Christ. You're in the gall of bitterness, Peter says. Or another translation would be, Simon, you are a bitter fruit, or you are a root of bitterness. And man, you, you, you look at that phrase, with that root bitterness type of language right there, 
Peter there with that phrase, gall of bitterness, root or fruit of bitterness, he just took that phrase directly out of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 29.18 is where he gets this verse where God had earlier said this to the Jewish people. He said this, Beware, my people, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One, a person. One person who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead, God says, to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Beware, my people. Beware, my people, of that person among you. You know, I've heard Christians say before, and I understand it, but we've heard the language of the bitter fruit or the bitter root, and we kind of see this thing, I, I don't want a bitter root to rise up in my heart. Yes, that's right, you don't, and you want to deal with bitterness, but the scripture, when it talks about this bitter root, it's not just talking about a little thing in your heart, it's talking about an entire person. The bitter root that would rise up within the convert, con- congregation. Walking in the stubbornness of his or her heart, saying, I will be safe here. And God says, beware. Why beware? Because, God says, it will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. That person, the bitter root, will defile, will harm all of you, the entire congregation. And we find that same Greek phrase in one other place in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 15. God now says this To Christians, he says, see to it, Christians, that no one among you, again, a person, no one among you fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up among you and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Same idea. He took it out of Deuteronomy, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Beware Christians of that person among you who has failed to obtain the grace of God in truth. A root of bitterness, this person among you, it will spring up and cause trouble, defiling, harming many, the entire congregation. And who is the root of bitterness within the people of God who will spring up, defile, harm the church? It's false converts. It's people who think they're saved and they're not. Wolves in sheep's clothing. And please hear me, false converts can kill churches. And listen, we do it to ourselves in our churches. We do not do a good job of manning the gates we, we, we let many false converts into membership in our, in our local churches simply because they say they believe in Jesus, which can ultimately kill your church. And we do it to ourselves. Mark Dever gave a message on the subject, false conversion. Here's the title of his message, False Conversions, the Suicide of the Church. Churches are not destroyed typically from the outside in. They are destroyed from the inside out. And it's when we do not man the gate well. Now listen, we want, if you're not a Christian here today, you are welcome. You are welcome. That's not what we're talking about. We want you here. You who don't yet trust in Christ, you're trying to learn these things. The problem, and you non-Christians have felt it. The problem is the people who call themselves Christians and they're not. 
and they produce bad fruit and you have tasted it. And you have walked away then saying, I don't want Christ or anything to do with his people because it stinks. They're all hypocrites. And the the fact is, there are professing Christians who are pure hypocrites. Say they trust in Christ, they've been baptized, they believe they are Christians, and they're not. There's no genuine love for Christ in their hearts. There's no genuine worship of Christ. They don't find Christ to be a beautiful person. They want his stuff. And if they have to join his team to get his stuff, well, they will. But if they join that team and they find that the stuff is not there, they will walk. So we want non-Christians here. It's the people who call themselves Christians, the wolves in sheep's clothing, when we don't do a good job of manning the gate. And parents, the onus is on you a lot of times. And I'm going to tell you this with your children. I know you love your kids. I know you want your children to go to, into the kingdom of heaven. But if you just whitewash your kids and you ask them to pray a prayer of salvation when they're four and then from that point on you dig your heels in the ground and you say, my kid's going to church or my kid's going to heaven, that's a scary place. And it makes it hard. It makes it hard on the church. It makes it hard on elders because then we have to st- step in and we interview your children and think, now i got to talk to a parent. We do it to ourselves. The suicide of the church is false conversions. Enough false conversions in the church, the root of bitterness, they spring up, cause trouble, defile many, ultimately kill the church. And Peter looks at Simon's now, and he says, you are a bitter root. You talk about guts, and you talk about love. I will not walk in the fear of man with you, Simon. I will not hold back what I believe is true. This power and the strength of the Holy Spirit, you, Simon, are a bitter root. No true grace of God yet. Believed in some way. You were baptized. I don't care, Peter says. You're a false convert. And Peter, in love, he now calls Simon to action. You look at verse 22. Repent. Therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and Simon, you pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And you know, you look at this man Simon here, one of the primary things that Simon lacked at this point, no repentance. Repentance means there's, there's a change of mind. There's, there's a, a change of heart. There's, there's a turning in your life. You turn away from, from your, your, your sin and you turn to Christ and you cry out for mercy. You were going this way in your life, in your sin, in, in your sorcery maybe or whatever you loved in, in, in your life. And, and you turn 180 degrees. And you seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to go in the opposite direction toward the Lord Jesus Christ. You renounce your former life. You do not enter the kingdom of heaven until you renounce your former life. You, you, you die to your old life. Jesus said unless, unless, uh, I just lost it. Lose your life, you'll find it. You lose your life, you'll find it. If you hold on to your life, Jesus says, you will lose it. You, 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 you have to make a choice. You, you have to make a choice. And repentance is the choice. You must repent in order to be truly saved and forgiven. Jesus says in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will perish. It doesn't matter how many times you're baptized. 
Unless you repent, you, you, you will perish. If you want to be truly forgiven by Christ, he's so ready to forgive you. He is so ready. He will forgive any sinner. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, but you must do two things. You must both repent and believe. John Murray said that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. A true, genuine faith in, in, in the heart, it will always have genuine repentance on the other side of it. And if there's no genuine repentance there, there's no true faith. It's a superficial, useless, dead faith if it doesn't have repentance attached to it. And listen, when it comes to false conversions in this world, people who think they're Christians but they aren't, repentance is almost always the thing that is lacking. And most of the time because nobody ever told them they had to repent. They just heard a message, believe in Jesus. Yes, and repent. And if you try to believe without repentance, you don't get saved. You don't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's repentance that's lacking so often in false conversions. There's something there that looks like faith. They say they believe, but on the other side of the coin, no no repentance. Proving the faith is dead and Simon had never repented, never died to his former life. I don't think ever turned from his sorcery. He was just hungry for more power. He wanted the people to come back to him. He was just trying to get those things now by following Christ. That's my ticket to these things. You know why there are so many false conversions today? It's what's called easy believism. I've already kind of mentioned it. You, you, you just ask people if they believe. Your, your kids, maybe, you believe in Jesus without ever calling them to any repentance. And when they say they believe, well, they're, they're, they're baptized in churches. And, uh, but if there's no repentance, they're false converts. The problem is now they think they're Christians. And what's happened is they've simply been inoculated against the truth. You know what happens when you get a vaccine? You get a little bit of the dead thing so you don't get the real thing. And people who are false converts, they've gotten a little bit of dead Christ, a little bit of dead Christianity, and it keeps them from actually waking up and getting the real Christianity and the real Christ. They're inoculated against the truth. And man, Peter, he sees that in Simon. And in mercy, Peter addresses it. He gives Simon here a chance to change. What a mercy from God. He gives Simon a chance to change, to, to, to wake up and repent. We don't know if Simon ever did it. You'll notice here that Peter says to Simon, repent, Simon, and you pray to God. And you ask God to forgive you, if possible. But Simon won't do it. You look at verse 24, and Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And many commentators believe that Simon's lack of willingness here to pray as Peter instructed, he won't obey Peter, is an indication that he's still not repenting. So that, as sobering as that is, that, that, there it is. That's Simon the sorcerer, false convert, I believe. Superficial faith, bad fruit, no, no repentance. And in conclusion, let me just see if I can bring it home, kind of apply this to us. What do we do with this text? Let me suggest quickly just a couple of things. Number one, examine yourself today. If you call yourself a Christian, you test yourself today, and I say that in love for you. This right here, it is not a Pop-Tart text, and if you read through it and it feels all good to you, whew, you didn't read it right. False conversion. Ah, oh, this warm topic I love to think about. 
that is a hardcore vegetable topic. That's straight broccoli. And you don't get any ranch dressing with that right there, man. That is just straight broccoli. Supposed to be sobering. And in God's eyes, for people who say they're Christians, that's a part of a healthy, balanced diet. And one of the reasons that that text right there is in the Word of God is because God wants you to test yourself. Do you realize that as a professing Christian, God actually wants you to examine yourself to make sure that that you meet the requirements for Christianity in the Scriptures? 2 Corinthians 13.5, the Apostle Paul says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And how many Christians, professing Christians actually do that? They say they believe in Jesus, they're baptized, and then don't ever tell me I might not be a Christian. That is the most dangerous way to live your life. Put your head in the sand and just hope it doesn't happen. God tells you to test yourself Examine yourself. There are false converts in the world all over the place. Make sure that it's not you. Which leads to a second application. One, test yourself. Two, come to Christ for the right reason. Simon came to Christ to get his stuff. He came to get power. But he also came for praise and and, and possessions. If he could just get more power, people would praise him again. People would follow him again. He'd have possessions. He'd have wealth. Simon still had his idols of power, of praise and possessions. He hadn't renounced his former life. He was just looking for it in in Christ. Now thought Christ would give him his idols. That's not Christianity. And many people today, though, do the same thing. They don't really want Christ. They want to love and worship Christ. Not, Not really. They just think Christ can give them their idols. Christ can make them wealthy. Christ can make them healthy. Jesus can give me a great life on this earth, I think. And He'll give me heaven on the other side. Following Jesus will give me all the things my heart sinfully craves. No repentance. Just coming to Christ for idols is the wrong reason. What's the right reason to come to Christ? Because you need a Savior. Jesus Christ came to earth to save sinners. You don't need Jesus to give you your idols. You need Jesus to save you from your idols. Because your idols are the things that will take you to hell. And see, what we want to do is we want to have, we want, we want to have our cake and eat it too. I want Jesus and my idols. I want Jesus and my former life. I, I, want to, I want Jesus as my Savior. I don't really want Him as my Master. I don't want to follow Him and obey Him as my Lord. But Jesus came to save sinners. And you came to Jesus to save you from your sin. Now, you're getting somewhere and guess what? When you are then a Christian and you don't have power and you don't get the praise of men and you don't have the wealth, you won't grumble and walk away because you didn't come for that. You came for a Savior. Test yourself. Come to Christ for the right reason. Number three, come to Christ the right way. And the right way is faith and repentance and repentance is critical. Primary problem with false conversions, no repentance. It's just not there. But you must repent and, and believe. Trust in Christ alone. Don't try to buy salvation. Don't try to buy it. It's a free gift. Simon tried to buy it. You can't buy a free gift. You must repent. And you must then simply receive the free gift as a sinner. Receive it in faith. Simple childlike repentance and faith. And then... Christ forgives you 
and he loves you and he protects you and he fills you with his spirit and he produces good fruit in you and he preserves you all the way to heaven for eternity. May God give you, may God give us the grace today to examine ourselves and to come to Christ for the right reason and in the right way. Father, we just offer this up to you now. In the name of Jesus. Lord, it is not um, always my delight to preach on texts like this, but I thank you for them because these guard us. These guard us as individuals. They keep us from walking a blind path to hell. These guard us as a church. Father, help us to toe the line in your scripture, all of it. Help us not to waffle. Yes, you are love. And we just thank God for all the people around the world who would trumpet that God is love. Yes. But Father, never let us think that in love, you overlook your justice. That in love, you overlook our sin. Doesn't work like that. Help us, Lord. Help us to toe the line. Help us to embrace even the tougher scriptures in the word like this right now. And I pray right now that, Lord God, you would convict. I I know I've preached these sermons before, and I know the people that tend to be rattled by these sermons. It's the true Christians. And the hypocrites always think it's somebody else. And I just pray you break through, Father God, the blindness in hypocritical hearts here in this room. And you give the gift of faith and you give the gift of the Holy Spirit and you would cause people to cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Help us, Lord God, we pray. Help us, Lord God. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.